I always regard news as, in effect, the high-level gossip. Did you hear? Oh, my God. Did you hear what they're doing? In a way, it's harder to be a journalist now than it might have been, say, 15, 20 years ago. Then suddenly... In this crowd, a family I know from Syria. The job of a journalist is to tell the stories of our time. My name is Lise Doucette. I am the BBC's chief international correspondent. I began my life as a journalist more than 30 years ago. And now I'm going to try to give you a bit of a masterclass in what it's like to be a journalist working around the world, particularly in hostile environments. Hello and welcome to the Masterclass. I'm Louisa Lim and I teach journalism at the University of Melbourne. Each week we have a master of audio journalism talking through one aspect of the craft. This week we're talking journalism in hostile environments with Lise Doucette, the BBC's chief international correspondent. Lise has won many awards in her career and has reported from Syria, Yemen, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iraq and across the Middle East. Lise, when we talk about hostile environments, we're not just talking about wars, but also about all the other pressures on journalism. But let's start off with talking about conflict journalism. I mean, you've been on the front lines a lot, telling stories of conflicts, especially ones far away that may have been forgotten. I mean, how do you get people interested and listening in this age of information overload? I would begin by saying that I never describe myself as a war correspondent. The job of a journalist is to tell the stories of our time. And all too sadly, those stories do have to do with conflict about the wars and the hostilities of our time and the natural uh, disasters. But I approach covering a war the same way I approach covering an election, a cultural festival, a sports match. The stories have to be about human beings. They have to be stories about mothers and fathers and children and our neighborhoods and societies, because that is the only way for all of us to care. Why does it matter to us, these places far away? And I always aspire in my work to try to say this dark, dark place so far away, plunged into some of the worst violence of our time, is full of people not so different from me and you. Our job is, of course, to explain the context, complain the complexity, But even in covering stories like the conflict, which began as an uprising in Syria, one of the most complicated and consequential stories of our time, it still has to be told as the story of people who are part of that conflict. And you do that so well. Just these little vignettes that you bring to life. I remember listening to one about a cafe in eastern Aleppo during wartime and the man running the cafe saying people really need to come because they need something to take them away from war for an hour or two. And I thought that was such an interesting choice of place to go. And this is the sound of the popular Beirut's cafe here in Aleppo. The place is packed with young old people from Aleppo, some children eating, drinking coffee smoking shisha, water tobacco, as the fiddler plays a hunting tune. You're the owner? No, I'm manager of this restaurant. And is it always this full at night? Not every day, but mostly day. What is the feeling among these people? Because they're in a situation still at war. 
All people come to here to get out of pressure, daily pressure of this life here in Aleppo. Uh, maybe for uh, electricity and uh, internet, um, some fun. The sound of music, uh, like service here, drinks we serve here. It's hard. There's a lot of electricity cuts, water cuts, insecurity. So hard. We can't bring fuel for the engines. Electricity always cut and come, cut and come. We have a difficult condition to work, but we still work. Do you think it's going to get better, or do you fear it will get worse? No, we feel everything will get better in the day it will come. What we often do, myself and different producers who work with me, before we go out to be it Afghanistan, be it Syria, be Iraq, we ask people around us, what most interests you? What are the questions on your mind? And often people will say, how do people survive? And secondly, why would you want to go there? <laughs> and I think that is the task. Of course, we have to explain what accounts for the rise of the so-called Islamic State, why are Saudi Arabia and Iran rivals in the region. But I often find that people also want to know just about the nuts and bolts of life. I always regard news as, in effect, the high-level gossip. Did you hear? Oh, my God. Did you hear what they're doing? And instead of talking about people on the desk next to you, you're talking about President Assad or Prime Minister Abadi of Iraq. So we try to do that, very mindful. And I remember years ago in Afghanistan, after the fall of the Taliban, and we would go and do long films, and I would say to the producer, there needs to be a sequence about explaining the context of this war. We need a sequence explaining what are the big questions now in this conflict. But we also have to have a sequence which shows people the humor of Afghans. Afghans have a wicked sense of humor. Mm -hmm. You could call it a dark sense of humor for a whole generation which has grown up knowing nothing but war. How do people get up in the morning? We all face that task. What has always humbled me is, is saying how people have to get up. We call it the three H's. Hope, humor, and a bit of humanity to get through the day. And even in places like being on the outskirts of Baghdad with senior sheikhs who are leading tribal forces in the fight against Islamic State, they're cracking jokes. And, and it's not to make light of the very real challenges. It is to say at the end of the day, we're all human beings trying to get through the day. And the more that you can get away from these stereotypes that you sometimes hear, I do see journalism as trying to break down the divides. I mean, and that doesn't mean being naive or giving a rosy light across everything we do. That is not our job. Our job, of course, is to hold people accountable, but it's also to explain to people why do people do what they do, to give some insights into these conflicts of our time. And this is ever more urgent because the conflicts of our time are not out there in those countries far away. They're on our streets and in our neighborhoods. These major refugee crises, these security threats, climate change, you name it. The crises which affect all of us are truly global ones. Mm. Let me ask you about your relationship with your sources. There was one story that you did that went totally viral across social media, where you were at a picnic in a Canadian park. It was a picnic for Syrian refugees organized by their Canadian sponsors, I think in September 2016. And you suddenly saw a family that you'd known from Syria, the Sabak family. 
but it's this really moving moment because you see them and you run across the park and everyone is kind of screaming and crying. It's so striking just how different the mood is here than much of Europe. But then much about Canada is different. Every Syrian family here was carefully vetted and then welcomed by families here in Canada. And they haven't seen the kind of attacks here that have caused fear across so much of Europe. But when you look at this, you have to ask, could this kind of engagement be adopted somewhere else? Then suddenly, in this crowd, a family I know from Syria. It's been more than two years. Their lives were so desperate then. We're living as if we are waiting for death, Hanan told me. Little Dodd lived in fear. She hated the future, she said, not knowing if she'd live or die. And here she is today. I see my future now and I have something to do it here and like, I like Canada so much. I just wonder, I mean, you cover so many stories. How do you make that kind of close connection with your sources? Well, as you know, Louise, it's not possible to make a close connection with everyone. But you have to try to make a connection. And this is what I would say to young journalists as you're starting out, is that if you really, really want to be a journalist, it cannot simply be a job or a story, a story with a beginning, meaning, end. Of course, it will be that. But you have to see it as also as meeting somebody, striking up a connection, even if it's for a few minutes, a few hours, or in the case of the Saba family, now they will be in my life forever. We're both grateful for that. Because I sometimes joke, and it's not just a joke, that journalism can be an excuse for bad manners. You know, we think we're so important that we can go around the world and we have this extraordinary power that we knock on a door or pick up a phone and say, hi, I'm John Doe or Jane Brown, and I'm from this media and I want to talk to you. You know what? People talk to us. They open their doors, they open their homes and their hearts to us. And that is a huge responsibility and it's a huge gift. And we cannot take that lightly. There is a lot of pressure on journalism. It's a very competitive environment. We're on deadlines. We're working in risky environments. Again, it's back to my question of humanity. Journalists in so many places are demonized now, that we go, we grab people's stories, we mistell them, we misunderstand them. You know, all this criticism of so-called MSM mainstream media, we have to look at ourselves too and how we tell our stories and do we tell them well. And I think you're right that it is, in a way, it's harder to be a journalist now than it might have been, say, 15, 20 years ago because of that attitude that surrounds us, this kind of resentment towards the mainstream media. I mean, how should young journalists, how can they counter that? Or what can they do in this kind of environment? Just be better journalists. <laughs> Just keep asking questions. Because if I have one piece of advice, first thing is to find out, do your research to get the understanding, which shapes the questions you're going to ask. The questions, that's our weapon. That's all we have, asking questions. But even more importantly than asking questions, you have to listen to the answers. And to this day, 
every time I go, especially to do a major interview with a president, prime minister, king or queen, whatever, I remind myself on the way, please listen Listen to the answers because you miss things. And when you cringe in the edit suite and you think, oh, I didn't hear them saying that. I should have picked up on that because I was so busy thinking of my next question. <laughs> so the better our questions, the sharper our listening will mean better journalism. But also, I'm not someone who basically shuts down and says, right, mainstream media or Western media is right. And, you know, whatever you call it now, alternative media, media from different countries in the world, obviously, it's sometimes portrayed in a place like Syria's Russian media versus Western media. I will listen, watch what they do. No one can claim to have a monopoly on the truth. And these are very, very complicated side. And it's always been so clear to me, and this was when a light bulb went on for me, is that especially when you go to hostile environments and particularly to battlefields where there are always two sides and in the wars of our time, there are many sides, is that you do have to listen to all sides, especially in the hostile environments I cover today. It is the perception of what is happening on the ground that matters more to the course of the conflict and our discussion and, and the narratives around the conflict than the actual facts. One example where you do this really well is in a recent interview with a BBC programme about the civil war in Yemen. And you've just come back from there and you talk about both sides. You speak about both what the Yemeni government said and what the Houthi rebels were telling you and what you'd seen with your own eyes. But the reality is that civilians, including children, are being killed. The UN says two-thirds of civilian casualties are being caused uh, by the coalition airstrikes, the rest by landmines and Houthi missiles, etc. But we went to the parts of Yemen which are under the control of the Yemeni government. And it's also equally clear that the Houthis have a lot of questions to answer. Just take one issue, the recruitment of child soldiers. The numbers are, are very unclear. People cite that there are thousands of children who've been recruited to fight on front lines. But I've spoken about this to many heads of agencies, and it's clear that the Houthis are recruiting the most. And we went to a centre funded by Saudi Arabia and to hear the stories of these children as young as nine years old who've been forced to fight on the front lines. And we were in Marib, which uh, Yemenis describe as the, the safest city in Yemen. And even there, you visit a prosthetic center, and there's a huge queue of men and, again, children who've lost limbs, hands and feet because of the landmines that were scattered indiscriminately by the Houthis before they fled this area. And I think, you know, I think this is why there is a plea, most of all from, from Yemenis, is stop this madness. There can be no military solution. It's time for a political solution. We've heard that for many years now. One of the things that I think we've seen in recent years is this problem, not just in hostile environments, but everywhere, of access to journalists that's really narrowing and shrinking. How can you go about your job when nowadays, even when you're doing a really simple story, it's often really, really hard to get anyone to talk to you. And this is the thing that my students come back to me time and time again. They're like, well, we can't find anyone who will give us any comment, any officials. And what kind of advice would you give to them? What did they say in the film? Nemo just keeps swimming. <laughs> you have to just keep keep going. And I have to say, I'm always amazed by the ingenuity and creativity of young producers, young journalists that I work with. We live in this time of great paradoxes. One of them is that never has there been so much information 
about our time, including the conflicts of our time. But never has there been so much misunderstanding, so much uh, misinformation, and so much misperception. And you really have to work hard, particularly with social media, to say, is that a real video? Has that video been tampered with? Where does that video come from? Who is sending that video? What are they trying to say? Who is this person on Twitter? And this task is becoming ever, ever more urgent and ever more difficult. You probably have seen now technological advances about audio shaping, where you there's been ones on social media where they have former President Barack Obama's face and they put his voice saying something, but it's actually not him saying it. But the copy of it is just so realistic that it would be very easy to fool people on the internet where they'll see President Trump or whatever leader saying something which they didn't actually say. And it also could be you or I saying something we actually didn't say. It is going to be what started out as such a huge tool, a very, very valuable tool for all of us in access to information around the world has now become a weapon in the hands of those who want to use it for other ends. To your comment about it's very difficult, I mean, the thing about our time is that presidents, prime ministers, people who had everything from jihadi groups to civil societies, they have Twitter accounts, they have blogs, they have social media. We have other places to access it. And so many more people writing, so much more video. So there is more sources of information. And this is where we need journalism more than ever, because this unrelenting flow of videos on YouTube, tweets on Twitter, it's an endless, endless flow and full of emotion and sense of immediacy. And all that is very exciting. But the job of a journalist is to distill it all down, to establish what is the truth of all this, and so far as the truth can be found, and to ask the question, why does it matter? And back to the most important point of all, what is the story here? What is the story and how can I tell it and tell it as well as I can now? So do you find that you're having to be so much more careful about the use of Twitter and social media nowadays, as, as both as information and as sources for stories. I mean, how do you go about that process of distilling when, you know, you've got to be on air at the top of the hour and there are so many unknowns? You have to be, yes, known unknowns and unknown unknowns. When Twitter first started, I was reluctant. I waited at least two years before I joined it. And then I put my toe literally in the water when I was covering the floods in Pakistan several years ago and thought, I'll use this to see if it's a tool. And it was magical. I would put on Twitter, hi, I'm in the city of Peshawar and the banks of the river have flooded. And then someone would immediately say, hi, I'm in Islamabad. Why don't you come here? We're waiting for the floods to come here. And then someone in Karachi would say in the south of Pakistan, oh, we're waiting too. Everyone is leaving the city. And suddenly there was this conversation going on of exchanging information, all of us feeling part of this effort. Fast forward to where we are now, and I was just looking at my Twitter feed this morning. It's full of, why aren't you covering this story? How come Lise Doucette hasn't answered me? Whoa, wow, <laughs> she's just, you know, making things up. Oh, typical mainstream media. But again, back to my point, it's about being human. You know, I understand that people are angry. They see me as the symbol of why they're angry, so they can have a go at me. I don't want to have a row on Twitter or any other social media. I respond as politely as I can and try to get a conversation going. And then ultimately, for those who don't want a conversation, 
then I will discontinue it. But there's always something to learn from these exchanges. I mean, in this age of information, how do you get informed? How do you have the time to do that? Well, <laughs> every day is a new day. I, I do. Twitter is still a very good source for me to find out what other people are writing, to get links to other articles, which is one of the first reasons years ago I was persuaded to join it. So that still serves that purpose. I listen to the radio. I do watch the TV. Of course, I watch a lot of and listen to a lot of BBC. <laughs> still thinking that despite all the criticism, that it's a very good source of, of information. And I talk to people. I call people up. I meet people. That still is, for me to this day, I still believe that there is no better way of finding out than a face-to-face conversation with someone. And almost without exception, when I go and talk to someone, my views on something will change or I'll get new information or a new understanding. And that's the beauty of journalism. And it's absolutely crucial. Again, back to our storytelling. You shouldn't have made up your mind about the story before you even get to asking people about the story. But I should say too, don't forget to read poetry, look at art, try to get to, for example, if you have a speciality if you want to focus on Latin America, whatever part of the world you want to focus on. I remember the advice that was given to me by a university professor. He said, whatever country or region you want to focus on, make sure it's a place where you like the food, <laughs> where you should not just like the food, where you love the art, the music, because that gives you that granular sense of the society that adds layers of understanding and emotion and history and context that will shine in your in your journalism. So I do listen to the music of the places uh, where I travel. Another bit of advice I would give to, to journalists is things I continue to carry around language tapes. It is one of the best ways to break down barriers, even if you just know a few words. I wish I was more fluent in a lot more languages, but if I was starting out again, I would definitely spend my time learning languages. They can be absolute gold dust, both for accessing other sources of information and also for being part of the conversation. So important to try to be part of a conversation. And it's best done if you can engage directly in the language of those who are the ones driving the conversation. Lise, can you give us two top tips for young reporters starting out now? I would say, especially when you're starting out, don't ever, ever give up your dream of being a journalist so early in your life. So many people at the start said, well, you're not a journalist. Oh, you've got the wrong accent. Oh, sorry. Thank you very much. We already have people out there. You have to give it your best. And if there's one thing that defines us as journalists, and for some it's a negative quality, for some it's a positive, is our drive, our drive to get the story, the thrill of the chase. When I started out a very long time ago, I was told, well, Lise, you don't have a journalism degree and you you don't have any experience. We don't have a job for you. So I just found a volunteer placement and I went to Africa and I started reporting from there. And for years afterwards, I would literally put my finger on a map and trace where the BBC didn't have anyone. So that was Afghanistan and Iran. And so I started to specialize in the the places that nobody else really wanted to go to or couldn't get to. And I still see that with young journalists. I was just, I just ran into a young journalist 
who I've known for a while. He's got um, a South Asian background. He was showing other journalists from a, a journalism school around. And I said to them, listen, your teacher wouldn't have told you this. But I was so impressed because he came to the BBC and he was trying to make his way. And then he decided, well, I will specialize in doing stories about South Asian culture in London. So he did Bollywood weddings. He did culture. He did art. And he found himself a niche. And that is where you have to go as you as you strike out you have to find those little spaces that haven't been filled by anyone else or you have to create your own space by focusing on what matters to you, what is already part of your own life and your own story that gives you the advantage, be it a language, be it a connection to another culture, build on what you already have. So there are still ways and means to get ahead in journalism. It is harder. The risks are higher. We, I remember when the uprising started in Libya and there was a in 2011 there was a rush of freelance journalists and so many of us said wait don't rush to the front lines we know you want to make your name but this is so dangerous you need protection you need to have security training paradoxically the reality was and tragically the journalists who did lose their lives in Libya were some of the world's best known photo journalists like Tim Hetherington and others like him they were the ones who lost their lives on the front lines of Libya. But the fact still remains is that do not take uh, risks that are greater than you can prepare yourself for. Take calculated risks. It is about risk taking, but don't push yourself to the point where the story matters more than living after the story. And I believe you have a task for listeners. Take a battle in somewhere in Syria Go what we call mainstream media and see how they're reporting it. Then go to Russia Today or journalists who would support the Russian narrative on the war. There's a whole number of different journalists who now completely reject the analysis of Western journalists. And see if you can find elements in both that bring you closer to the story. You may say, listen, the Russian version or the alternative version is absolutely, totally wrong. It's complete propaganda. Or in fact, you may say that the Western journalists have totally missed some key facts because I truly believe that the truth is somewhere in the middle. There is a lot of propaganda. Let that be said. Information is a tool of war, a weapon of war. But I think we still have to keep asking questions and interrogate every bit of evidence so-called that we find. Lise, thank you so much for your time. That was great. Thank you. The Masterclass is produced and edited by Louisa Lim, Buffy Gorilla and Ruby Schwartz. It's recorded by Gavin Neighbour at the Hallwood Recording Studio. The original concept is by Anders Furs. The music is by Susie Wilkins. It's all brought to you by the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. Thanks for listening. <laughs>